Let's, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter, e, chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. We're going forward, not backwards. If you want to follow along in the Bible in the pew in front of you, you can find that on page 971. Matthew chapter 12 or 971 in the pew in front of you. And, you know, I think, um, I think one of the most dangerous things in our hearts that often tend to creep up is unmet expectations. Think about it. How often have you had an argument with your spouse or with your children or with your boss or with a friend or something like that because there was an expectation that you had or an expectation that they had that was unmet. And you know, what really makes them dangerous is a lot of times you don't even know what those expectations are until you've broken them. So those are really fun, aren't they? And so I think that's one of the most dangerous things that can happen. They can poison a marriage. They can poison a job. They can even creep in and they can poison a church. And, uh, and as I said, a lot of times what happens is, is that you have these expectations that are given and, um, and you don't even know that they're there. In fact, I know of a pastor who, uh, he took a church and he was, he was bivocational and, and so he had a, he had a, a really good career on the side and, but he was also a, a called uh, man of God and so he took this church and and really, they were, they were paying him what they could, you know, but obviously it wasn't enough to make any kind of living. He was basically doing it for free. And, uh, and he loved it, but there was something he was supposed to do that he didn't know about it, and so they chided him for it, and he says, well, I didn't know that was part of my responsibility. And they said, well, didn't you, don't you remember seeing that on your, uh, on your job description? He was like, job description? I never got one of those. He'd been there a year and a half and, uh, and they had never given him one. And so they gave him one. Guys, it was six pages front and back of expectations for him to do. And he was bivocational. I, was like, I mean, my job description was only like, you know, a page and a half. I don't think it was even that, to be honest with you. And so unmet expectations. And, and he just flat out told him, he's like, guys, this is like three jobs at minimum. So I'm not doing this. And so I'm not agreeing to this. And so uh, anyway, it made for a really interesting idea. But you know, unmet expectations can also hurt your faith. They can also, when you are expecting something from God that he has not necessarily promised you, when you're expecting something for God to do that he has not necessarily given you, that can, that can wreak havoc in your faith. And so this morning, my hope is to realign our expectations to a biblical understanding of what Christ's ministry is to us. And that's what we're gonna find here in Matthew chapter 12, beginning in verse 15. And I'm gonna invite you just to stay seated as, as I read this to you. It says, Jesus, aware that the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, he withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, 
Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Just to remind you where we've been at the beginning of Matthew chapter 12, we began looking that Christ has claimed to be and he is the Lord of the Sabbath. In fact, this entire series that we're talking about is the conviction of the disciple. What is it that we believe about Christ? What is it we believe about what he's come to do? What is it that we have accepted about him? And now you may remember in the beginning of 12, we saw that he is the Lord of the Sabbath and then he proved it by on the Sabbath healing a man who had a withered hand. And you may remember that at the end of that, at verse uh, 14, it said, but the Pharisees went out and they conspired against him how they were going to destroy him. Jesus was not only breaking their Sabbath traditions, but he was openly defying them in the synagogue and that was just more than they were willing to tolerate. And so they decided it was time to let him go. <clears throat> destroy is actually a very strong term because the idea here is not that they're just wanting to kill him, although obviously it involves that. But they are wanting to get rid of any and all influence that he has in the country. By the way, I think they failed. In fact, ironically, isn't it amazing how their very plotting to kill him was actually setting in motion the very plan that God had to begin with. I mean, isn't it funny how God works that way? And so, but anyway, so that, that's what they do. So in verse 15, Jesus leaves. He knows what they're doing. In fact, Matthew directly connects this and says that he's aware of what they're doing. And so he leaves and he goes to another place where he continues on his ministry. Now, we read that all the time, but think about that for a moment. If you are expecting a warrior Messiah, if you are expecting a, someone to come in who is going to kick out the Romans and he is going to establish a nation of righteousness and a nation of, of peace for the Jews... And he's got enemies that were plotting against him. What would you expect that Messiah to do? You would expect him to go and face off his enemies almost recklessly, right? But that's not the kind of Messiah Jesus is. In fact, Jesus, he leaves there. And Matthew gives us kind of a four-point rapid-fire summary of what Jesus is doing in verses um, in uh, verses eight, in verse 15, he withdrew from there. Many followed him and he healed them all. And in verse 16, he orders them not to make it known what he is doing. So, so that's a little strange. That's why would he do that? Why is he acting in this way? But I think you'll find it a little strange, but only if you have the wrong expectation of who Christ is. 
and what he came to do. And so Matthew is gonna help us out here. He's going to go to Isaiah chapter 42 and he is gonna quote what is the longest passage in Matthew that he quotes. And he is going to explain to us the ministry of Christ and what it is all about. And he's going to do that in a few different ways. But what I want you to see here is that he is he's looking at kind of the summary of Jesus's ministry, and then he quotes Isaiah to say, this is what Jesus came to do. This is the kind of Christ that he is. He is not that general who is gonna come. He's not kind of a, a Jewish version of William Wallace. He's not a Maccabean type leader. He's not General Patton. He's not any of those things. He is what God has directed him to be. That is the Messiah that he is. And so what we're gonna see this morning is that we need to strive to understand what kind of savior Christ is for us if we're gonna adjust our expectations and what do we need for that? Well, Matthew's gonna show us, like I said, three crucial understandings. And here's what we have here. Number one, that Christ was chosen for us. Christ was chosen for us. Look at verse 18. He says, quoting Isaiah, he says, behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased, well pleased. You know, a few weeks ago, some of you may have watched this on TV, uh, King Charles was crowned the King of Britain. He finally got a job. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway, um, I don't know if any of you watched it, but at some point at the ceremony, there was a, a royal decree that was given that now here is, behold, the King of England, King Charles, whatever number he falls into. And that's, what, that's kind of what this verse is doing. It, it is a royal proclamation. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I am well pleased. Sounds like something we've already heard at Jesus' baptism, right? Matthew has already quoted this once. But now he's gonna define it even more and understand that the full implication of this is that Christ is the chosen one of God. In fact, that's what the word Messiah means. That's what the word Christ means. It means the anointed one, or you could kind of give a free translation to say he is God's chosen king. He is God's chosen one. He is his chosen servant, and so what does that mean? Well, let's look at a couple of, of scriptures that, that give us what this, that's fleshing this out. For example, John chapter 17, and, and we're, gonna, we're gonna look at this a couple of times, so you might wanna put your ribbon there. But John 17, verse two says, since you, Father, this is Christ praying, since the Father has given the Son authority over all flesh to give eternal life, to all whom you have given him. And so I want you to notice that first phrase there, that who you have given him authority over all flesh. All authority has been given to Christ. He in heaven and on earth, we see that is the basis of the Great Commission. 
All authority, how does it begin? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. That's the command. But the command is on the basis of Christ's authority. Look at Philippians chapter two, verses nine and 10. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth. And goes on to say, and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. Christ is God's chosen king. Therefore, that means that he is our king. He may not be the king we would choose. He may not be the king that the Jews wanted. He may not be the king that, that we might have been looking for, but he is the king that God has given us, his only begotten son. What's so significant about this? Look in, look in Ephesians chapter one. I wanna, I wanna show you something. Why is it so significant that Christ is the chosen king? In Ephesians chapter one, we're gonna look at verses uh, three and four, but just start off in verse four. Uh, I want you to see this. It says that even as he chose us, now most of us wanna stop there because sometimes we don't like the implications of what that says. But beloved, don't stop there because look what it goes on to say. He chose us in him. That's the point. What's so great about this, about this is that we are chosen, not that we are just simply chosen, but we are chosen in Christ. That everything, it says, even as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world. In fact, if you go on and look, he says he chose us, we have been blessed in Christ. Look at verse three. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Beloved, every blessing we have in salvation is in Christ. It is in Christ. Every good thing that we receive from the Father, we receive through our union with Christ. That's the point, that we are in Christ. Beloved, just think about all the blessings we have. We are elect in Christ. We are alive in Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are holy in Christ. We are righteous in Christ. We are preserved in Christ. We will be glorified with Christ. And that means the only way that we can be severed from Christ is if Christ dies again. Guess what's not gonna happen? And so everything, every blessing we have from the Father comes to us through our union with Christ. Everything we have is in Christ. So that's why we need to understand that Christ is God's chosen king because by choosing Christ, we are chosen in him, in Christ. Don't miss that little phrase, in Christ. Don't miss that. 
it's so blessing, mysterious, yes, but so rich and so good. But there's more. Christ has not only been chosen for us, but he has conquered for us. Look what it goes on to say in verse 18. In 18, it says that my soul is well pleased. What will happen? I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Now, when we come across this passage in, in Isaiah, I want you to understand something. In fact, you might even want to turn there. But uh, Isaiah chapter 41, as we are working up to this quotation, it says here in, uh, in 41, God actually says that Israel is his chosen servant. It says in verse eight, but you Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. And so the nation is declared to be God's chosen, right? His, his, uh, his, uh, his chosen servant. But as you look down in the passage, what you find is a servant, a nation servant that God three times tells them, fear not, fear not, fear not. Because in the midst of this context, there is a nation that is beaten. There is a nation that is in captivity. There is a nation that is hopeless. There is a nation that is, that is afraid to try and do anything. They have been beaten into absolute submission to their captors. And so that's why in God, in, in Isaiah 42, he begins to change the words a little bit. And then he announces now, behold, my servant, only now it is no longer the nation, but now we see that the servant is actually a person who is a representative of the nation who will become king. And this servant, through the power of God, being enhanced, being enabled by his spirit, being filled with his spirit, this servant king, this Messiah will go and rescue his people and he will bring them to his salvation. And so he says here, this servant, this one who will come, he will bring justice, and not just to Israel, but to the nations. Now, I know justice is kind of controversial today. We see a lot of talk about social justice and that kind of stuff like that. So we have, to, we have to kind of define what we're talking about. And in the context of Isaiah, when he refers to justice, what, what he's really, you can broaden this concept out and understand that he's talking about the righteous rule of God that will include things like right and wrong, that will include justice, that will include righting all the wrongs, is what I meant to say. It won't include wrong, but it will include righting all of those things. It will include it all. And so justice is kind of a shorthand for the reign of God. It's kind of a shorthand for his kingdom. And this is gonna come even sharper and to focus with the passage that's following this one. But, but suffice it now to say that all will be made right. 
that all sickness, disease, all of those things, that all of the effects of sin and the curse and the fall, all of those things will be eradicated. They will be gone. And the servant of God, the messianic king, Christ, will reign forever and ever. And like I said, we're going to see that in sharper focus. But I want to remind you just a, just a real quick about a famous dream that a pagan king had in, in Daniel chapter two. And you may remember this, Daniel chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream and he tries to get a little political rivalry, you know, a little, uh, tries to do some political trickery here, but Daniel kind of gets through it. And, and you may remember that the, that the dream was a statue and the head was made of, of one kind of metal, the the, the shoulders and arms were made of another. The torso was made of another. And you remember the feet was made of iron and clay, which represented the Roman Empire. And you remember there was a, there was a rock that was honed out of the mountain. It was not touched by any human hand. And it came and it, and it, it destroyed the statue, hit the statue at the feet, representing the Roman Empire. And all the kingdoms of humanity fell. You may remember Christ in the days in verse in Daniel verse two, verse 44, it says, "In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. What's the, what's the significance that Christ came when he did? Because he came during this time. This prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. And he came and he set up this kingdom. God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that means everything in the world that has held you down, everything that has sought to destroy you, all of those things are over. They no longer have any power over you when you come to Christ. It has no authority over you anymore. You know, when we left Colorado, um, I think I've shared this with you before, but when we left Colorado, we had a little trouble share, uh, selling our house, and, and it took us over a year to sell it, and, and um, every, even though they gave us a mortgage book at the beginning, uh, every, I guess Bank of America just likes to waste money. I don't know. Imagine that, but they kept sending us a, a monthly bill for our mortgage payment, and I hated that thing. Every time it came in the month. Uh, every time it came in the mail, every month, I, I dreaded that, came, that bill. And every time that house that had brought us so much joy and, and a home now had become a, a shackle on our feet. And, and we were trying to sell it as best as we could. And it took us so long. Well, finally, somebody bought it. But you know, for about three or four months after everything was paid off, we were still getting those bills probably about for about four months afterwards, we were still getting those payments that were, they were telling us that we had to pay. You know what I did with them? I ripped them up and threw them in the trash. Boy, that felt good. <laughs> Beloved, when the world, the flesh, and the devil come to you and tell you that you still owe them a payment, you are no longer living under that captivity and you don't owe sin, the world, or the devil a thing. 
You don't owe them nothing. That's bad grammar, but that's good theology. You don't have to obey those sinful temptations anymore. You are no longer a child of your sin. You are now in Christ. You are citizens of a new kingdom and you don't have to give in anymore. In fact, here's what James 4, 7 says. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Christ is king. And when all those things come knocking at your door, sending you a bill demanding payment, you don't owe them nothing. You are a child of God. You belong to Christ now. Now I want you to understand that Christ, the kind of king that Christ is, we see kings and we see nations and we see all these things come and go all the time. We, you know, back in the day, uh, fairy tales when I was a kid, they began with the phrase, once upon a time. Now fairy tales begin with the phrase, if elected, I promise. <laughs> but what kind of king is Christ? What does he do? Well, I want you to see he's not only been chosen for us, he's not only conquered for us, but he is also compassionate toward us. And that is the rest of the passage. It says in the beginning in verse 19, he will not quarrel, he will not cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets, a bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his names, the Gentiles will hope. These verses both here and in Isaiah, they point out the kind of rule that the servant is going to have once he conquers the kingdom. Once he conquers the world. And he says a few things that are worth noting. He will not quarrel. In other words, he will not fight. He will not cry aloud. Think of a war cry there. He will not cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. In other words, he doesn't come for a fight. He's not shouting a war cry against his opponents or against God's enemies. In fact, quite the opposite in his first coming. Instead, he says he will not break a bruised reed. This is a bamboo-type kind of cane that people used, and once it was broken, it was kind of worthless, and they would break it and throw it away. It says, he will not break a bruised reed. He will not even extinguish a smoldering wick that has reached its last bit of life. In other words, he will be gentle. He will be compassionate. He's not come to take life in his first coming, beloved. He's come to give it. He says, I come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. He says in his first coming that I did not come to condemn the world, but to seek and to save that which is lost. And beloved, if you're here this morning, Christ is searching. He is seeking for you. He is looking for you. Think about it at the beginning. The Pharisees were plotting to kill Jesus, to destroy him. He didn't come to fight a war. And so he withdrew. And he went about what he came to do, to heal, to find people who were desperate and bring them to himself. 
And the passage goes on to say, he will not give up until his mission is accomplished. He will not stop until all his people come home to Christ. He came to bring hope to the world, not just Israel, but it says at the end that in his name, the nations or the Gentiles will hope. That's me and you. You know, think of Solomon's son. You remember when Solomon died and Rehoboam took over? Uh, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, you know, those Boam boys, you always get them confused, but uh, Rehoboam took over. And the people came to uh, Rehoboam and they were so exhausted. They were beaten down by Solomon's heavy tax revenue and, and all of the ways that he had abused them and oppressed them. And, and they were beaten down. And, and they told Rehoboam that if you will lighten our load, we will follow you. And Rehoboam came back, the young man that he was, and he says in uh, 1 Kings Chapter 12, verse 14, my father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplines you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. You know, that's what the people expect of their kings. That's what the people of this time expected would happen. They were used to being oppressed. They were used to being uh, abused like a tyrant who dies and leaves the country to a child that's 10 times worse. Usually when a son takes leadership over a country, they consolidate their power and they take it all for themselves. But that is not Christ. Christ was chosen as God's chosen king. He goes and conquers the kingdom and then he shares in compassion all of the things that the father has given him. He shares it with his people. John 17, going back to that, it says in verse 22, the glory that you, Father, have given me, I have given to them so that they may be one even as we are one. He's a tender and compassionate friend who has not only died for our sins, not only rose from the dead, not only ascended to heaven, but he tenderly shepherds us, guides us, and gives us everything we need for life and godliness. And he's coming again one day to take us home forever to be with him. <coughs> He says, and just in the passages above, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Peter says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he might exalt you. Cast all your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. Christ is God's chosen king, but he didn't come here to conquer the world as a tyrant or a despot, but he came to save the world and to offer life to you. Beloved, this morning, Matthew has shown us that Christ was chosen for us, he's conquered for us, but he is also compassionate toward us. And this is the ministry to us and to his people that he gives Christ didn't meet all the expectations the Jews had and 
It's not because he couldn't. No, it's because their expectations were too small. They wanted, they wanted national deliverance. That's too small. God had something much bigger in mind. They were only interested in temporal blessings. God was interested in giving them eternal life. And beloved, what will you trade for eternal life today? What little temporal blessings are you wanting from God and focusing on as opposed to the bigger gifts that he's given you? Life. Election, justification, sanctification, all of these wonderful things in the scriptures, all these wonderful promises he's had. What will you trade those for? A new car? A new job? What will you trade them for? No, beloved, keep your eyes, keep your eyes on Christ. So how can we adjust our expectations just real quick? Number one, keep your eyes on the Father. Keep your eyes on the Father. Remember, I, you remember Psalm 73? He was, had his eyes on the world. He was getting jealous of all those, the wicked around him. But then he says, but then I went into the house of the Lord and then I understood. Keep your eyes on the Father. Number two, keep an eternal perspective an eternal perspective. Psalm 39, verses two and three, the psalmist is, is musing over something he's mad at, but then he turns around and he says, but then the Lord makes me understand my end. Keep an eternal perspective. Beloved, if it's not gonna be worth arguing over after you've been in heaven 100 years, it's probably not worth arguing over now. Right? Didn't get a lot of amens there. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> if it's not gonna be worth it after you've been in heaven 100 years, it's not worth it now. Keep an eternal perspective. Number three, know the promises of God. Know what he has actually promised you. All of his promises are yes in Christ. One of the quickest ways to get disillusioned in the faith is to rest on promises that the Lord has not actually given you. He has not promised you health and wealth. He, has not promised, he hasn't promised you another day. But what he has promised you is eternal life in Christ our Lord. Beloved, what would you trade for that? And then number four, finally, from Paul's example, learn contentment. Learn to be content with what you have with where you are. In fact, Philippians chapter four, verse 11 and 12, he says, I have learned to be content in all things. I know how to suffer loss. I know how to, how to have much. I know how to do all of those things. And then there comes the famous verse that's always taken out of context. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of that is learning contentment. Learning to be content. So beloved, where are you this morning? Where are your expectations for Christ? Have you placed them in the right Savior? Are you understanding who Christ is and his ministry toward you? Or have you been disillusioned in your faith? Maybe it's because you have a wrong view 
of Christ. Maybe it's because you have a wrong view of salvation. We were uh, doing some work over in West um, Batesville, just knocking on doors, getting to know some people and different things like that. And this lady uh, answered a door on her porch and she said, you have no business here. You don't have any, I don't have anything to do with you. I, I tried that Christianity thing. I did all that. It doesn't work. I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God and I don't want you here. I asked her, I said, well, has, has something happened that caused you? I went to a Jehovah's Witness church for all my life and they did this and this and this and this and this and, and I know everything you have to say and I don't want it. And I tried to gently tell her and she did let me, she did let me tell her. I'm gonna, I'm gonna respect your wishes. I'm gonna get off your porch. But please hear me that the gospel you reject, you are rejecting and the Jesus you are rejecting is not the Jesus of the Bible. And I would love to tell you about the true Jesus sometime if you would like to hear. And maybe that's your problem this morning. Maybe you're so disillusioned, discontent, because you have a misunderstanding of what Christ has promised you. And so I wanna offer that to you this morning. This morning is our monthly communion, and so we're gonna get ready for that. And I would just ask you as we partake in the elements, just ask yourself that this morning. As you taste the element that represents his body, as you taste the element that represents his blood, ask yourself, is this the Jesus is the Jesus of the Bible the one that I'm trusting in? Or have my expectations gone astray? Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And as we are preparing for this ordinance, this sign, this physical sign of invisible realities in our lives, Lord, we pray that you will use this time to Strengthen our faith in the gospel. Lord, that your grace will come to us through the symbols, that we will be sanctified, and we will once again be reminded of our salvation. Father, if there's one here this morning that does not know you as Savior, I, I pray, Lord, that something has been said or done as they hear the word explained, as they see the word portrayed in the elements Lord, I pray it would prompt them to seek you out, to ask questions, and to look for genuine salvation. I'm gonna invite you to just take a moment as our servants come forward and prepare for the feast. The Bible encourages us to examine ourselves before we partake in this. That is not to say that we must be sinlessly perfect. If that were the case, we would not need this time. And so we're not asking you if you are sinless, but we are asking whether there is sins in your life that need to be confessed and repented of. And if so, do you need the very grace that these symbols offer you? And so... I just invite you to reflect on that for just a moment. With your heads bowed, eyes closed.